Welcome to another of the Retire Notes podcast series. I'm Bruce Manners, the author of Retirement Ready and founder of the RetireNotes.com website. Today I'm in conversation with Paul Borges. Paul is a couples counsellor and lecturer in counselling at Avondale College of Higher Education. The topic is about keeping marriages strong as we get older. Welcome, Paul, and thanks for being available. My pleasure, Bruce. Hey, give us a big picture. What keeps a marriage strong? The best research that we have, Bruce, seems to indicate that the foundation of a good marriage is a good friendship. And I think as we get later into life and as perhaps some of the things that are more significant earlier in our married lives tends to wear off and become less important, I think what's left, or sometimes what isn't left, is a good, solid friendship. Friendship sounds very basic, but that works. Certainly the best research that we have says that people, and this is longitudinal research that was conducted watching couples interact together and then following up 12 months later, 5 years later, 10 years, 15 and up to 20 years, seem to indicate that the type of behaviours that couples who are sometimes called uh, by researchers the masters of marriage rather than the disasters of marriage, okay. um, they seem to engage in certain behaviours that are helpful. And those behaviours are, interestingly enough, the same type of behaviours that are actually important to good friendships. Mm. For example, the things that good friends do is they know things about each other. They know important things. They know what the other person likes, what they don't like. They know some of their painful stories. They know their happy stories. We know that in marriages that go long-term and that are described as satisfying and happy, we also know that people build what we call love maps of each other. In other words, they know a whole lot of stuff about the other person, more perhaps than anybody else in the world knows about that person. That means their communication is more targeted, it's more focused, what they do and the way they act towards that person, the expression of their love language towards that other person is more likely to resonate because we know the person better. So it's like friendship where you really do know the other person. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So there's this romantic notion that couples have when they meet, let's say, early 20s, that they want to grow old together. But there's got to be some disadvantages to growing old together. What challenges do they face? There's certainly challenges. And one of the big challenges is that we change. Yeah, We're very, very different at 50, 55, 60 years of age than we were at 18. There are the obvious differences in the way that we look and in our appearance, but they're also other differences as well. We may have grown in certain ways that our partner may not have predicted. We may have changed in ways that we would have never predicted. That's true. And so healthy marriages are marriages where there's a high level of adaptability. So people sign up for one thing and generally end up with something quite different than what they signed up for. And the reason for that is we actually don't know the person that we marry. We think we know them. Yes. And some more cynical theorists have suggested that we are actually not marrying a person as much as a projection of what we want and our unfulfilled needs onto somebody, and we spend the rest of our life coming to terms with the fact that there is a huge difference between the reality of the person and the projection that we actually married. In other words, it suggests that we actually marry a fantasy. 
a fantasy that doesn't exist, but is wonderful to fall in love with. Okay. And then we have to come to terms with the fact that that person cannot be. In fact, no person can be all of those things we thought they were, and it's unrealistic. And we find out that they're actually more human than angelic. And that coming down to earth over the years is sometimes something that couples don't negotiate well. And I guess our partners find the same in us. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Isn't, yeah. isn't that annoying? <laughs> it's, it's, it's one of the injustices of life. I think that the person that we think we marry is not actually the person that we marry and we are still getting to know that person. So after 40 years of marriage, we are still getting to know the person because our partner is constantly changing due to the developmental stages that we go through due to sociological influences. Uh, we are continually in flux. So there is a sense in which we really struggle to know our partner because just when we think we do, they're different again. Yeah. So when reality hits, what happens? How does a couple get through this? I think one of the things that people do when reality hits is they try to change the partner back into the fantasy. I bet that doesn't work. No, it's never been shown to have a high success rate. (laughs) (laughs) Changing your partner is, is doomed to fail, but it doesn't stop people trying because one of the funny things about us as human beings, Bruce, is that just because something doesn't work doesn't mean we stop doing it. In fact, what we tend to do, if it doesn't work, we do it harder and uh, we wonder why it doesn't work, but then we do it harder and uh, still wonder why it doesn't work and then we get angry. I think other couples somehow manage to be able to work on what I would call more of a perhaps a covenant principle of relationship rather than a contract principle because a contract principle means that I expect fairness in my relationship and you give me this, I give you that, I meet this need for you, you meet that need for me. Okay. I think that's a model that's fraught with difficulty. A covenant relationship is more based on promise. I make this promise to love you unconditionally till death do us part. And now let's see what happens with that. Let's see how that affects your behavior towards me. Let's see how that affects how we do life together. And that, I think, allows for a lot more flexibility because it takes the demands out of it. You must do this for me. You must be this sort of partner for me rather than the focus on what is it that we can build based on those promises that we've made to love each other unconditionally. There doesn't seem to be a lot of romance in this. What happens to romance? Well, I think romance certainly is what kickstarts all marriages. And we know there are different stages to marriage and different stages to love, in a sense. And we know that the romantic infatuated stage of love, that seems to last somewhere between six months to two years. And after that, it's not that it totally disappears, but it's more like it has to be invited So couples have to be intentional about let's spend time together, let's go away for a weekend together and then some of those lovely, wonderful, romantic feelings come back until they drive in the driveway and well, the lawn has to be mowed and the three kids are screaming and and the electricity bill is overdue and then you hit life again and some of that romantic love stuff that is so beautiful at first 
has to fade in the background because of the realities of life. If we stayed in that romantic phase of love, we wouldn't be able to function. We would lose our jobs. We would go bankrupt. Because when we're in that romantic phase of love, we don't generally ask how much is this going to cost or how much time it's going to take. Because there's something very addictive about that initial stage of love. What takes over after the romantic love or what becomes predominant after that is what we call companionship love. Okay. And some people describe this as a little bit like a comfortable pair of slippers. Yes. <laughs> Not particularly exciting, but very comfortable. And they feel good. And you like your slippers and you don't want to get rid of them because they're really, really comfortable and they're warm and fuzzy and they make you feel good. But there's nothing necessarily overly exciting about them, but they're familiar and they're what you want to wear more than anything else. Maybe I'm a bit of a romantic, but surely there's got to be some romance in there as well. It sounds to this plus this equals that. <laughs> I think what happens is that romance comes to visit. <laughs> okay. and, and I think it can come quite regularly for some couples. And I think it depends to some extent on how you define romance and what romance actually is. Yes. Is romance just sort of the butterflies in the tummy? Mm -hmm. Or is romance actually more than that? Is romance that deep, loving feeling that I have towards my partner that is there despite their flaws, despite the things that annoy me? There's still this deep, loving feeling. I'm happy to buy that sort of view of romance. But if it's an excitement and a feeling that seems to block out all of my partner's faults, then, yeah, that feeling doesn't hang around. Okay. We become very aware the longer we live with someone, and this is one of the challenges, I think, as we are longer and longer with each other, we find it harder and harder to hide our flaws from each other. Yes, I think there's a truth in that. <laughs> kind of going back to where you were before, I suspect there's a truth in the fact that as the marriage goes on, let's say... When people get in their 50s and 60s, mean married 30, 40 years, it's almost as like it becomes a bit of a rut. Is that how it happens? Certainly. And there are some dangers with that. As we know, a rut is simply a grave with both ends opened up. So <laughs> ruts, I think, are really the enemy of long-term marriage. Get me out of the rut. How do I get out of it? Well, I think it's by being intentional. I think it's really important to be very intentional in how we nurture our relationship. I'm always interested that people will be very religious, very meticulous about getting their car serviced. They'll be very careful to make sure that they water their pot plants regularly mm -hmm. and, and give them food. But when it comes to marriage, we somehow think marriages are going to take care of themselves. What can happen is there can be a huge emotional disconnect where two people are living in the same house because that's what they've always done, but there's very little emotional bond left between them. They tolerate each other, they know how not to upset each other too much, and they may still share the same bed together, but the intimacy, and, and by that I don't mean primarily physical intimacy, but the emotional intimacy, the connectedness has largely gone. Okay. What do we have to do to make it work? I think firstly, as I was saying, I think we have to be very intentional about nurturing and feeding our relationship. I think that's the first one. As part of that, I think rituals, I'm a firm believer in the importance of rituals in our marital relationships, in our family relationships. Okay. 
In other words, things in place that we do regularly. Some people do date night, so make sure that at least once a week they spend some time together. However, even that can become a rut where they just automatically go to the same restaurant, eat the same Chinese food, hardly say boo to each other and come home and go, okay, we did date night, that should divorce-proof our marriage. Uh-huh. I think it's to, to keep a marriage vital is about taking risks, I think. And the risk is to do things differently to do things that are out of our comfort zone, to do things that push us to have new experiences. And as we share new experiences together and do things we didn't expect to do together, a real bond can occur. Okay. So surprise your spouse, your partner with something unexpected. Yeah. Maybe without saying anything to the partner, organize a holiday that she never thought she was going to get because you always said you couldn't afford it. Mm-hmm. Take a little bit of a risk and go, well, we'll do that holiday. And the first thing she'll know about it is when I tell her the night before to pack her bags and to say, hey, we're off to New York for <laughs> two weeks or whatever it is that, you know, is, is going to be meaningful. I think that's the intentionality that I'm talking about. Okay. Look, divorce is a reality. I don't know what the statistics are. I read somewhere it's about 40% of marriages ended divorce. When that happens, down the track in the 50s and 60s, what are the complications there? If there has been a divorce earlier on? Yeah, yes, sorry. Yes, yes. Yeah, the complications are a number. The first is to do with children and the way that children are managed, particularly sure. as most people choose to be in another relationship. They either get married again or they partner up with somebody and often that person has children. So often there's a power struggle between my children versus your children. Okay. And that gets really damaging. And I think it's difficult for a partner to come along and say, okay, my stepchildren have the same rights as my children, even though I have a different bond. But in this relationship, I will make them important because they are my wife's children. Mm -hmm. And even though I'm never going to feel the same bond to them that I feel to my own children. Now, I think that's a, a real sort of change in thinking. We really need to kind of shift gears in our head to go, I'm going to make them as important as my own even though I will never have that bond or that connection. Sure. So I think the second challenge is finance and how finance is managed. A lot of people come to grief about that and people often you know, getting married again or partnering up later in life often come with very different amount of assets that they've collected. Yes, yes. And, and I get really concerned when people talk in terms of, well, this is my money because I brought this into the marriage and you didn't bring anything into the marriage. It seems to me that that contradicts everything that marriage is meant to be. Okay. And if it is that unconditional covenant and if I am sharing my life with you and my bed with you, then surely the, the sharing of assets and finances needs to be done in a similar vein, it seems to me, of mutuality rather than being desperate to protect yes. what we had before. And some of this probably should be talked about before anyway. It should certainly be talked about before. You may be picking up from this, Bruce, that I'm not in favour of prenuptial agreements unless they need to be done for terms of business and protecting the new marriage from... Sure. Business, But other than that, to me, a prenuptial agreement seems to go against the very spirit of marriage. Yeah. I am committing to you and I will love you till death do us part. But if we do get divorced, then 
I need this amount of money out of our estate. You know, that it just seems to me an unfortunate way that we've gone as a society. Yeah, and it kind of kills the romance again, doesn't it? You really like this romance, <laughs> don't you, Bruce? You're, you're very much the romantic, I can see. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think it does. I think it does even more than that. I think it takes away from what marriage is meant to be about, which is I share my life with you, except my bank account. <laughs> I mean, that that just... Yeah, it makes no sense to me at all. Yes, yes. Okay, one more question for you. Where do couples find help if they need it? Well, the obvious, and you would expect me as a couples counsellor to (laughs) say this, Bruce, but the obvious is professional marriage counselling. For some reason, people feel that the time you should go to the marriage counsellor is just before you call the divorce lawyer. And that seems really, really unfortunate. That's a little bit like taking the car to the mechanic just before you send it to the wreckers. Uh, It seems to me that just like we make sure that the car is serviced regularly and as soon as there's something wrong with it, we get it to the mechanic, surely we ought to do the same for marriages. And there's many times that couples have come to me that I have quietly thought to myself, if only they had come two to five years earlier, if only. The damage and the bruising that has happened as a result of how stuck they were and we're not able to deal with that stuckness in a healthy way is going to make this now a lot harder to come back from than it would have a few years ago. So I would argue that when people feel that they are stuck, then is the time to go and get some professional help to get unstuck. And do it early. And do it sooner rather than later. Marriage counsellors are not just for people whose marriages are on the rocks. By the time they've hit the rocks, we are limited as to what we can do. We can be much more useful if people are coming to see us as professionals as soon as they realise that things are getting a bit choppy and they can't seem to find a way out of it like they normally do. Let's leave it there. You've offered them help, which is great. Thanks, Paul. I've been talking to Paul Borges, who's a couples counsellor and lecturer in counselling at Avondale College of Higher Education. And thanks to you for listening to this RetireNotes.com podcast.